When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For those who don't know, uh, Hot Girl Summer really started as like, you know, just like a catchphrase for Megan the Stallion or whatever. Um, she was just like, oh, we're going to have a Hot Girl Summer now. Yeah, I didn't have a Hot Girl Summer. I was just hot. I was just hot as fuck. Disgusting. <laughs> so disgusting. My hands are still so sweaty right now. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And even though the calendar says it's officially fall, Caroline, we gotta talk about Hot Girl Summer and the 24-year-old breakout rapper Megan Thee Stallion who coined that catchphrase. Yeah, in a male-saturated industry known for elevating just one queen at a time, she's leading a whole stable of up-and-coming female rappers, hip-hop artists, and musicians who give minimal to zero fucks about what the guys think. They are galloping up the Billboard charts too, Caroline. I see what you did. I see what you did there. I mean, how many horse puns? can we have as many as possible. If you think, though, that women breaking through in rap is old news, think again. Because since 2000, they've made up less than 15% of Billboard-charted rappers. So folks have been fist-pumping lately that Megan Thee Stallion is one of seven female rappers, along with Cardi B, Nicki Minaj, Lizzo, City Girls, Sweetie, and, yes, Iggy Azalea, to crack the Billboard 100 in 2019. Which is the strongest representation we've seen this decade. And, Caroline, I would say that Megan Thee Stallion, a.k.a. Tina Snow, a.k.a. Hot Girl Meg, a.k.a. the hottie from Houston, is also a perfect tee-up for our guests who are all about some Southern rap and hip-hop. Yes, because hot tip, y'all, if you want to hear about hip-hop through an unladylike lens, there's no better duo than our ATL pals Christina Lee and Dr. Regina Bradley. Christina is a music journalist, and Regina is a professor, researcher, and former Harvard hip-hop fellow. And together, they rep Atlanta and the entire South on their podcast, Bottom of the Map, made by one of our Atlanta NPR affiliates, WABE. Their tagline, dope women taking hip-hop conversation in a new direction. We wanted to say dope-ass women, (laughs) but, you know, censorship a little bit. We can say dope-ass women. Okay, well, then I'll take it. All right. Since there's so much hype happening around women, plural, in hip-hop right now, we had to sit down with Regina and Christina to find out how these women on the mic continue to reframe and reclaim their sexuality, how the genre inspired an entire branch of feminism, and to decode the hot girl history that got us here. Can I just say before we get any further how excited I am to have 
four women in Atlanta in one studio. This rarely happens on Unladylike, mm-hmm. and I just really am excited for our accents to just fly. Well, shit. You know? <laughs> Let's get it started. Let's do it. But we are also in the Patchwork Studios. I felt like I should have brought something as, as tribute for how many dope-ass MCs have been through here, from Jeezy to Outkast to— All the records. UGK. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Yeah. So fun fact, by total happenstance, we met up to talk with Regina and Christina in, you know, one of Atlanta's most legendary hip-hop recording studios called Patchwork, and that is work with an E. Yeah, uh, walking in, I experienced a type of imposter syndrome (laughs) I had never really felt before because, like, the walls are covered with gold and platinum records from the likes of Outkast, Gucci Mane, Future, T.I., TLC, Ludacris, like... All of these greats have recorded here, and now, unladylike? Featuring bottom-of-the-map scholars Christina and Regina, who make sure that Southern hip-hop artists and culture get the coverage and conversations they deserve. And from a female perspective that's often missing in hip-hop criticism and analysis. What we noticed was that as Southern hip-hop was gaining prominence and becoming part of the mainstream, a lot of these conversations were still based in New York. You know, that is obviously like the birthplace and everything like that. But we felt it was particularly important to speak to the South from the South. How you gonna, how you gonna tell me about the South and you Northern and shit? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But I'm serious. Like, I'm dead ass. How you gonna tell me about, you know, Southern hip-hop and how Southern hip-hop moves and navigates and flows and what it means and your ass ain't been down here since you, like, 10, 11 getting bit up by mosquitoes <laughs> for your annual trip, but you just feel like you just know. Like, that's one of the things I'm extremely adamant about is that, you know, region is significant in how we think about hip-hop and how hip-hop culture manifests. You know what I'm saying? Like, the way that it functions in New York doesn't function the same way in, like, not even just in Atlanta, like an Albany or a Jackson, Mississippi or Alabama. And I really just f- wish folks would understand that. So for listeners who are unfamiliar, what would you say makes Southern hip hop distinct? For me, you know, regionalism impacts the literal way that we listen. You know what I'm saying? So, for example, if you're in New York, you know, let's go back to the 90s for, for the babies. OK, so like back in the 90s, there's this thing. It was called a Walkman. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's a little small little box with earphones connected to it. No, for real. That you box know, was not your phone, though, right? It wasn't the phone. <laughs> okay. No, no. It was its own, you know, its own little thing. Music was mobile. Like, you took it with you on the subway or walking around. You know what I'm saying? Because New York is like a pedestrian-friendly city-ish. Atlanta is definitely not, though. No, no. 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 So if you come south, mobility is different. You know what I'm saying? So one way that we listen different is that, you know, I call it, well, we call it the car test. It's like if it knocks in your trunk, if it gives you a nice vibe, you know, if you hear me before you see me, (laughs) then it gives you a better way. It gives you more initiative to really listen. Um, The other part of that, too, is that, you know, with New York, the influences are different. So like jazz, for example, like live jazz, jazz immediately comes to mind. Um, Nas is Illmatic really kind of gives that jazz improv vibe. Southern hip-hop pulls from, like, the funk aesthetic, like funk music and the black church and call and response and all of these things. We kind of put it all together in this nice little country fried bowl because it's something that, you know, Southerners have been dealing with since there's been a South, is that, you know, this idea of... 
the sacred and the secular. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And Southern hip-hop has one foot in the church and one foot in the club, whether it's the strip club, whether it's the club club. Um, strip club can't be the club club, I guess. <laughs> Now, y'all, it's not news that Outkast is and will always be hot shit in the South. But we're not here to talk about the boys. In fact, one of the defining traits of Megan Thee Stallion and her fellow rising rap stars is how little they need men. Like, whether that's in the bedroom or as features on records to boost their street cred. So, we had to ask our experts, what's going on here? Like, are we witnessing a renaissance for women in hip-hop? I wouldn't necessarily call it a a renaissance. I think women have been around hip-hop for a while. I think the bottleneck is starting to loosen a little bit. Mm. Um, Everybody's not a Nicki. Mm-hmm. And that is exciting. And I'm not knocking what what she does. You know what I'm saying? But it's also really exciting to be able to have options. So if I don't want to listen to Nicki, I can listen to Cardi. If I don't want to listen to Cardi, I can listen to rap. If I don't want to listen to Rhapsody, I have options. And I think that what was so great about women MCs in the early 90s and the 80s is that you had options. You know what I'm saying? You had Salt and Pepper, But you also had Queen Latifah. You had Lady of Rage. Depending on what your mood was for the day. We're getting back to that point now where we are having options. We're having more important uh, women and non-binary folks. I also want to shout out Big Freedia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're amazing. Um, and just being able to, like, make that room. And I think that's really what's particularly special about this moment yeah. also. Yeah, for sure. I also hesitate to say the word renaissance as well because I think it discredits some of the women who were in hip-hop before. It was just that because of lack of representation in media or lack of representation in the music industry, they might not have just been getting the shine that they deserve. So I feel like what needs to happen at this particular time, we also need to kind of look back at history and sort of like reevaluate it for ourselves. Okay, Caroline, like Regina and Christina said, this is not the first time women have really made a splash in hip-hop. Female rappers are not new, y'all. So let's rewind for a hot second. Caroline, take us back to the early 90s, before you and I had even gotten our periods. (laughs) What was your introduction to hip-hop? Okay, so I don't I don't know if this like technically counts as hip hop for those of y'all keeping score at home, but my answer would have to be TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool album. I mean, like it had everything. It had creep, it had waterfalls, and I so distinctly remember getting that CD and like studying the cover. It's bright red and you have the faces of Left Eye Chili and T-Boss just staring out at you and I wore that thing out. But what about you? So, uh Hip-hop and secular music in general was pretty much forbidden in my house growing up. It was a a very on-the-nose, 90s, white, evangelical, oh shit, the Clintons are going to ruin everything (laughs) type of vibe. Ironically, though, I learned my very first hip-hop song, Waterfalls by TLC. There you go. In the back of a church van on the way to some kind of youth group function. I'll never forget it. 
I hope my parents aren't listening. I might get grounded. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I, too, was raised in the conservative era. <laughs> the conservative church era of the 1990s. Um, you know, Such an intense time. It was an intense time. You know, you want, you want to fit in, but then you have all this great music coming out and... You know, <laughs> hormones are starting to come on and you trying to pray it away. Like, I literally remember, like, I found my journal from high school. Oh. So it was like, I literally found pages and pages of me trying to pray away the lust. Like, I'm just like a little horn bucket. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what to do with these new feelings and everything like that. So, yeah, my hip hop was under the bed. I had to hide it under the bed. All of it? All of it. My first real introduction to hip-hop, I was like nine, and I was being babysat by my stepsister at the time. And I asked her like a really like innocent question. I was like, you know, have you ever heard of Dr. Seuss? And she looked at me, and she started laughing, and she was like, no, but I heard of Dr. Dre. <laughs> and I was like, ma'am, who's Dr. Dre? So, you know, I had to go and sit, figure out... So I started, like, sneaking and listening to, like, her music. And, I, you know, there's a whole bunch of cuss words. And I'm just like, oh, yes, cuss words. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, and then, you know, fast forward a couple of years. And then, you know, 1998. And, you know, my husband is tired of me talking about 1998. But it's important. It's when I was first introduced to the cast because I was trying to shoot my shot with the fine-ass senior, Rodney. <laughs> um, and he shot me down. But, you know, I knew that before school started, I had to know all the words of Spodiotidobalicious. Yes, when I first met my Spodiotidobalicious angel, I can remember that thing. And I had to at least be familiar with Outkast. So there's that. That's my introduction to just hip-hop in general and Southern hip-hop. I wish guys that I'd liked in high school had better musical taste. I might have better Same musical here, taste now. Frankly. Well, Christina, what about you? Um, so I grew up in like the TRL age. Well, more specifically, like my parents kept cable out of the house until my mom finally decided to get it in high school, which was actually the worst time to get it because I did not study for the SATs. I was not <laughs> a particularly good student. I would just stay up until 3 a.m. like watching all the lists of like the most explicit videos. And so that's how I took in like my music as well. You so watch BET Uncut? I sure did. Mm. <laughs> anyway, um, my mom isn't listening. It's fine. Um, <laughs> So, you know, as I'm taking in like a Backstreet Boys and like an NSYNC, I'm also list, uh, paying attention to BET, you know, seeing Big Tig and Kid Capri um, and like also all the MTV2 countdowns with like Caduce and like Sway. And of course, at that particular time, uh, Missy Elliott. Missy Elliott just blew yes. my mind mm -hmm. seeing those videos pop up like and you didn't know when they were coming either well first of all I slept in the basement like my bedroom was in the basement Lucky. and and <laughs> I listen I understand now how privileged I am mm -hmm. <laughs> but, not as you can acknowledge it continue <laughs> so um once you came down the basement stairs it was like my bedroom then my bathroom was in the hallway and then the tv was like right there and so as I'm getting ready for my day if I heard Missy Elliott coming from the tv I like ran get I just really wish kids would understand, like, when you're at school, new song is out, and you get so mad because you get home and you turn on the radio, and they'll be like, that was so, and you just yeah. get mad as shit because you're like, now I got to listen to the radio, like, five more hours for it to play it 
one time. <laughs> oh I mean, you had to be committed. You had to be committed to the music and committed to the artists that you love. There was no such thing as no goddamn streaming. <laughs> no, like when I made no those mixtapes back in the day, that was work. That was literal work. I would just be posted up like at my little tinny little radio, like ready to just. Hit Are the you doing button. your homework? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any uh, women in hip-hop in particular that were formative for you, Regina? Trina, Missy, MeX, and Joy. Okay, so Joy's not a rapper, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Remember I was telling you that the hormones were starting to kick in? Well, there was this little song that was on the Triple X album called Lick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ma'am, <laughs> what is this? And how do I get my boyfriend to do it? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Joy. (laughs) Damn, I thought my habit of reading romance novels in middle school was racy. Well, Joy definitely had to be more sex educational than the Christian ska I was listening to in my tween years. Truly sad trombone. (laughs) Saddest of all trombones. When we come back, Christina and Regina introduce us to the baddest bitch in hip-hop and how she rewrote the rules for women in the game. Don't go away. We're back with Christina and Regina, and that jam was by the undisputed queen of Unladylike Rappers, Trina. Well, so let's talk more about Trina. <laughs> yeah, you know, Shall I'm talking about Trina all day. You know. <laughs> According to Regina and Christina, no conversation about women, rap, and sexuality is complete without talking about Trina, one of the most beloved, influential, successful, and horniest MCs of all time. Now, y'all, Trina's career was kind of accidental. In 1998, she was working at a salon when her friend, Miami rapper Trick Daddy, invited her to sling a clapback verse on his single, Non, and that performance unexpectedly rocked the rap world because of how hard and explicit Trina brought it. Then in 2000, Trina made her solo debut with her iconic album, Da Baddest Bitch. That album and the titular single topped the Billboard charts for weeks. What does it mean to be the baddest bitch? Oh, man. I mean, to be the baddest bitch is to hold yourself up to the highest standard and to take nothing less than that. Um, Thinking back to the Nam video in particular, um, Trina was... Still technically, how old was she when she did that, first of all? Do you 17, remember? 17, 18. 17, 18. When I was 17 or 18, I was still shy as hell. Like, I refused to talk to absolutely anybody and everybody. Trina looks at most, like, five foot tall, like, in this video. But I remember this one scene in particular where she's, like, wagging her finger up at a dude. Like, mm-hmm. when she's talk- when she is, like, you know, trying to talk to somebody taller than her and just looking like the biggest presence in the entire room, that's the impression that I get with being the baddest bitch. It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, just, like, surpassing any sort of idea of meekness and just, like, you know, really standing for yourself. You know, not shying away. Yeah. So what do you think it is about her music and her expression that has been so pivotal 
for other women in hip hop? She's make she's maintained control of her brand. Hmm. Um, I mean, like you know, it's it's interesting because you're thinking about women in hip hop. They're often associated with some kind of male act, which is you know, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, but she still maintained a sense of individuality that grew with her as she became more comfortable with who she was as a woman. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's like I I when I talk to my students about this because yes, we talk about Trina in my class. <laughs> it's like. The way that you see yourself at 17, 18 is going to change from the way you see yourself at 21, 25, 30. Um, And Trina does that. She evolves. You know what I mean? And I think that that is something that often concerns not just fans but also male fans is like when you evolve. I don't think we're gracious enough and we don't have enough empathy to allow for women performers to evolve into mm-hmm. their fully grown women selves. And when we don't do that, we're doing them a, disser- a disservice and us a disservice because you'll let like a Gucci Mane, for example. You know what I mean? When first folks were first introduced to Gucci Mane, it was like straight out trap, 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 trap for real to the point where a dude had an ice cream <laughs> Tattoo on his face. What you got down the street from here, by the way? Oh well, there, then there's that. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Now we have an activity for after this recording session. <laughs> What's a face tattoo? Um, and then you know he goes to prison. He comes back out. You know what I'm saying? He's eating better. I think he's like vegan now. I mean, like dude is like you know twelve packing it out here. Mm-hmm. Skin is popping. You know, keeping his hair cut and shit. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? But folks like, oh, well, Gucci has evolved. But you won't give that same grace. Yeah. To a Cardi B. Yeah. To a Megan Thee Stallion. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, you know, we just need to be, it's what I tell my students, we need to be equal opportunity haters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna hate on women in rap, you need to be hating on these dudes who do the exact same thing. <laughs> equal opportunity equal hater. Equal opportunity hater. <laughs> Man, I think um the way that I've seen Trina's influence play out is how she really embraced the word bitch mm-hmm. um, and used it as means of empowerment. I think Missy Elliott was doing the same thing with She's a Bitch. But with her, it was a point of pride because it was saying, like, what you're not going to do is walk all over me, right? And she was really announcing herself by calling herself not just a bitch, but the baddest bitch, right? Um, I see that play out in how even today, like, a City Girls, when they say, like, period. <laughs> That's, like, their version of, like, calling themselves, like, the baddest bitch. It's, like, I feel like when a lot of these acts that are really popular today, from a City Girls to a Megan Thee Stallion to even some of the lesser obvious ones. I mean, I'm even thinking about, like, to even take it a couple years back, like, somebody like a crime mob with Mm. a, you know, Diamond Diamond Princess or even more recently somebody like a young baby Tate. The way that they sort of carry themselves is, like, they heard Trina say, I'm the baddest bitch, and they're, like, okay, I can be that way, too. But as Regina tells us, claiming your baddest bitch space, even as a rapper, is a concept that's especially complicated for Southern Black women. This idea of ladylike is such a complicated conversation because on the one hand, it's like, you know, I mean, I was raised by my grandparents. So my grandmother came up in Jim Crow era, Georgia, like rural Georgia, like way outside the perimeter, Georgia. Um... And it was so very important to her how I was presented in public. Like, I always had to have the bows that matched the outfit. I had the frilly socks. I had the, you know, patent leather squeaky Mary Janes. Um, There was always a battle about being ladylike. Like, that's my grandma's favorite word, I swear, is, you know, ladylike. That's not ladylike. Don't hug that boy. That's not ladylike. Don't curse. That really ain't ladylike. So I'm really glad she don't know what a podcast is. (laughs) Um, And as I got older, there was always, like, this pushback. So it was just like, what if I don't want to wear this dress? 
I'm not a dress person. Um, but I had to do it because, you know, I had to be ladylike and pretty. You know, but when I was listening to hip-hop, do what I want. Be mm. who I want. Say what I want. Shit. You know, I worked. That's how I really got my my cursing down. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, I think that, you know, there, that, there's that aspect of it. And I think also there's conversa- increasing conversations that are talking about, like, where women's pl- places are it, within hip-hop culture itself. And I think that we're in, in the midst of a shift from being objectified by men, this idea of the gays, um, and also women, like, kind of taking over and telling their own stories. And I think that that makes folks uncomfortable, particularly men uncomfortable, because usually those stories don't center around men. You know what I mean? Like, for some folks, it's an act of freedom to be able to speak their truth, the power. And all that really means is for be- people to be able to speak their experiences, using their voices, making room for themselves to be heard. And I think that hip-hop does a really great job. But I think what's tricky now is that as we're entering a year where there are more female rappers like on the Billboard charts than we have seen any other time this particular decade, I feel like the folks around them, like in the industry or otherwise, are holding them to ladylike standards. Mm. So that's how you get some of those double standards, right? Like I think recently Jermaine Dupree had made some remark about how a lot of these women hip-hop sound the same. They should all be qualified as, like, stripper rap and, like, things like that. And that is, like, loaded with judgment, right? I mean, first, it's a level of judgment in the sense that, like, oh, is it wrong to be a stripper and to be a hip-hop artist, like, at the same time? It also makes me think about the folks who be like, you know, be a Lauryn Hill, not a Megan Thee Stallion. Or a Lil' Kim. Be a, or a Lil' Kim. Mm-hmm. Be, be Lauren. Like, Lauren wasn't talking about, like, you know what I'm saying, going through some shit and, you know what I'm saying, how she used, you know, she had dick problems too. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's let's be real. Mm-hmm. She had relationship issues. She had, you know, she has problems with her chi. Yeah. So she don't know if she's going to show up to a, a, a thing or not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's just really interesting to me mm-hmm. how these women are put on these pedestals, usually by menfolk. Put mm-hmm. you on this pedestal. And then most of the time, we don't want to be on your funky-ass pedestal. Like, you know, nobody built it. Like, you built it. You made it how tall it is. You know what I'm saying? You make it, like, unavailable to those who are on the come up. And then it's also, like, putting us against each other. So what are the people who say these things, <sighs> who criticize women in this way? Like, what are they missing? <laughs> I wish y'all could see my face, America. <laughs> <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> and beyond. I mean... Yo, it's like this for me. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Some of your listeners might get in their feelings, but I kind of don't care. You know, when we think about ideas of, like, empowerment and women, we often go to white women. You know, how white women dress, how white women feel empowered. And women of color can't follow that same path because oftentimes we have detours, so to speak, so to speak. Um, so, like, you know, when folks talk about, like, sex appeal and articulations of, you know, this is what it means to be um, acceptable, like, I think what gets under underappreciated is the fact that for such a very long time, women of color, particularly black women, have never been afforded the title of a human being. Where, when can we get to that point? So, like, when we get to, like, a Cardi B who's, you know, embrace of her sexuality, who embrace of what she wants, embrace of pleasure pleasure politics, which is something that we also talk about on the on the podcast, that male-dominated hip-hop don't know what the fuck to do with ideas of pleasure. They're just baffled. <laughs> it's called what? Um, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, there are these very kind of like cement and very rigid ways of approaching ideas of sexuality, ideas of desire that don't necessarily translate in a particular way. And if they don't translate that way, then that makes aspects of our of, of ourselves illegible. 
And I think that with Cardi B, there's so many aspects of her identity that are illegible Mm -hmm. to a larger audience that the easiest way for me to deal with that illegibility is just to be like, oh, well, she's just fucking it up. Mm-hmm. She's just not, you know, this is, this is, she isn't trying to be a role model. She ain't never tried to be a role model. Um, I haven't read anywhere about women in hip hop trying to be role models, but we're trying to like force that onto them. Um, and that's where we get those anxieties. It's like we impose those anxieties upon them. So that's what I'm, that's ultimately what I'm trying to get at is like, we need to stop imposing our own anxieties about how we view gender and, and class and race um, onto these folks who are in the spotlight and do our own work at home. Do your own homework. Well, and on top of that, like another, an added layer of fuckery on top of the white feminism is also white women being totally cool with like appropriating like mm-hmm. the language of hip hop and there's no such thing as boxer braids ladies unladies <laughs> it's called cornrows <laughs> <laughs> it's been a thing for a while <laughs> just wanted to put that out there go ahead it's true but i mean like it, especially in terms of the whole double standard around sexuality mm. um I've noticed, again, like, white women being cool with, like, appropriating it and almost, like, appropriating terminology, moves, whatever it is, an attitude, um, even memes on social media uh, to express themselves in, like, a particularly sexual kind of way. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, dissing a person like a Cardi B because she used to be a stripper. Or even doing something as simple as, I don't know, you say that, you know, you call everybody sis, but when I get on the elevator, you grab your purse. That ain't no sis shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Amen to that. And Caroline, you know, what I'm hearing from Regina and Christina is really one of the biggest ongoing challenges to women rappers and hip-hop artists breaking through en mass rather than like one or two at a time is giving them the space to define their identities and their music on their own terms. Right, and what that actually means leads us to hip-hop feminism, which we're going to learn all about when we come back. Don't hip-hop away. I really just wish that we could get to the point where we can accept the fact that uh, feminism is multi-rooted and it's multifaceted and one it's not a one size fits all like we're trying to make it. So like, you know, when folks are wearing the pussy hats, mm-hmm. right? Like a friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine asked the question like, well, what happens if pussy ain't pink? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're back with Dr. Regina Bradley and Christina Lee, co-hosts of the podcast Bottom of the Map. One thing we definitely wanted to talk to these two about is how feminism fits into hip-hop culture. Right, because on the one hand, you've got the Trinas, Missy Elliott's, and Megan the Stallions out there, like, owning their talent and sexuality and preaching self-love. But on the other hand, like, all of this is happening within a genre that is often, yeah, problematic for women. And it turns out there is an entire branch of feminism that's developed to address all of this. Can you define for our listeners hip-hop feminism? 
Yeah, so, I mean, like, hip-hop feminism is a, is a term that was coined by um, journalist Joan Morgan. It was found in her first book, uh, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, which was released in 1999. And she says that uh, hip-hop feminism is the means for those who are part of the culture to critique it, even though they're in the culture. So she says, specifically, I need a feminism that fucks with the grays. It's like my favorite line in any book ever. Um, and she's saying that, you know, I'm in the culture, I'm of the culture, I need to be able to articulate and critique the culture. But I I also think it's really interesting, too, is that um, hip hop feminism might be celebrated and embraced now, but in academic circles, it was looked down upon because it moved away from traditional mm-hmm. uh, academic black feminism. And what I mean by that is, you know, this idea of black women. I'm mean, like, you know, again, going, kind of going back to what we've been talking about is this idea of respectability, um, how that manifests in academic circles is especially amplified, unfortunately. Um, and here you have, you know, Joan talking about, yo, I'm listening to this music that's not quite getting the, the shine that it gets now and that it can be used as a critical form of inquiry about contemporary black womanhood. And the folks who actually do study black womanhood are like, yeah, we don't like that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Regina, because I do have my copy of When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, but I actually need to revisit it. It is due time. But a part of that book that particularly stuck out of me, Joan is sort of like open, openly wrestling with, you know, liking this music that may be coded as misogynistic. Mm-hmm. But like she's looking at like, OK, so what is it exactly that's like making me move? And like it's creating room for like these conversations, because as a hip hop journalist, I feel like the questions that I often got asked in the very beginning was, well, how can you possibly like this music if it's that berating to women? Mm. And you can absolutely acknowledge that as well. There's certainly room for critique in that as well. But like, there's also room for us as like critics to talk about like the artistic merits of the music. And I feel like that was a part of the book that really like resonated with me. It's just like, there's room for like all these conversations where like, you know, women get to be a part of that conversation where we're also dictating the artistic merits and also just sort of like wrestling with that. And then I feel like that's sort of like a, um, a complication that we deal with like on an everyday basis. So Christina, as a journalist following those conversations and participating in them, How do you think the music today has evolved and where is it going? Well, for one, I think it's been really interesting to see Southern women insert themselves in like the Southern hip hop lineage. And I'm thinking really specifically about a city girl's twerk. Um, that was building off this legacy that had been built by juveniles bat that ass up in addition to the New Orleans bounce music that had already come up. Um, so it felt like they were sort of inserting themselves in that narrative by literally like sort of sampling the source material and being like did you all know that you wanted to back that ass up with women? Because here it is. Something that I'm hearing on the radio a lot is that actually when it comes to um, bounce, but then also sort of the crunk era, like I'm hearing, you know, like Petey Pablo, you know, getting sampled. A rich nigga, a figure, that's my type. But, like, women are, you know, sampling these records in particular. Mm -hmm. So, like, we get to imagine, like, a future where it's, like, I don't know if this is Afrofuturism or not, but it's, like, I love to imagine now we're at a time where, like, 
you know, women are leading like the crunk charge in the same way that Diamond and Princess of Crime Mob had always envisioned, right? So mm. it's like now it's like they get to build off of that same legacy in ways that maybe they didn't have to chance, like women didn't have the chance to in the past. So that's that's particularly interesting. Um, and I think the other way too is how hip hop music is going to evolve with like with Gen Z. Um, and mm. I'm thinking of just about how like I think how their points of view, which it, whether it's by more um, culturally accepting or more multicultural and things like that, how that's going to play out into the music in particular. And I think what we're going to get, I think, is a more, I guess, like fluid, just like representation of what that even means. Uh, somebody who I interviewed recently uh, is young baby Tate, whose mom, Dion Ferris, uh, like was ruling like alt like alt rock radio at the time. Like I don't know if you remember that song. I know what you do. Her daughter, young baby Tate, you know, is a rapper who hangs out with like Megan the Stallion, but like um, decorates herself in like rainbow and glitter clothing and things like that. And her album is like literally called Girls. Mixing rap with pop in a really interesting way is that also feels like an answer to like a Nicki Minaj, but it's from a distinctly Southern point of view. So like I'm really interested in seeing how like Southern hip hop influences are going to play out in new ways that are completely unexpected to us. So for each of you, what is your favorite unladylike hip hop song? Oh, shit. Let me go back to the box under my bed real quick. I have to. (laughs) (laughs) Sit through the box. Sit through the box. Crate digging through the box. I don't know. Um, damn. That's a lot. I still love Lick, y'all. Like, <laughs> Joy's Lick. It, it, listen, I'm for real. You know, if you want to get some stuff done, ladies, unladies, just put it on. And he's going to be like, oh, what you want me to do? I'm like, okay, there's that. Oh, God. I'm going to forget the name of the song. It might have been, like Simon Says, off of Megan Thee Stallion's Fever. Simon Says, put your hands on your hips, yeah. Simon Says, put your hands on your hips. I always get it stuck in my head. Because she was always talking about how her pussy, how her pussy is finger looking good like Old Bay, and that's the part that sticks with me the most. I'm so sorry. Um, no, no, you ain't got to apologize. <laughs> I apologize. But that, hopefully, we'll get an Old Bay sponsorship out of this. Okay, Caroline. There's one last fun fact that I have to share with you before we wrap. Do you know what Megan Thee Stallion's plan B is? And I'm not talking about, like, the morning after pill. I do not. Okay, so she is currently a junior at Texas Southern University, and she's studying healthcare administration because she wants to open a series of assisted living facilities throughout Houston, Don't you love that? I do love that. It's like super practical and smart, but also really, truly great. Yeah. I don't know that I could call myself a hottie, but I will say I'm a Megan Thee Stallion fan. (laughs) Big time. (laughs) Listeners, we want to know who your favorite female hip-hop artists and rappers are. Hit us up on social at Unladylike Media, or you can join our Facebook group and find the thread for this episode. 
You can also email us at hello at unladylike.co. Find all the sources and resources for our episodes on our website, unladylike.co. Plus, while you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter to get a weekly update on actually good news about women in the world. And if you need even more pumping up, we made you an amazing Spotify playlist of songs and artists we mentioned throughout this episode, and we will link to it on the show page. Meanwhile, do y'all have questions about vaginas? I do. We're going to talk to everyone's favorite OBGYN, Dr. Jen Gunter, on an upcoming episode. So call our hotline and leave us a message at 262-8-GAL-PAL. For international folks, y'all can always email us a voice memo. Our producers are Sam Lee and Nora Ritchie, who just got promoted. Snaps! Abigail Keel is our senior producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Shruti Marate transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tutson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Patchwork Studios. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. Next week... Equal pay! Equal pay! Yes, y'all, we are talking to the only full-time journalist covering women's soccer in the United States and a badass from the National Women's Law Center who will help us make sense of the U.S. Women's National Team's lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. It will be a match for the ages. So make sure you don't miss it. Subscribe to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. the type of people make the club get crunk. <laughs> That's um, uh, B-52's cover. Do you want a bum bend slop with us? <laughs> Stitcher.